0: Let's continue worship with a reading from Isaiah 11, <clears throat> 1 through 6. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Welcome to church. I'm glad to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, um, can you open them to Matthew 21? So we're going to camp out today. Um, I don't know if you've been fasting in any form or fashion. It's coming to an end next week. Uh, But I can just tell you, um, my personal experience this time around has been profoundly fruitful um, in my life. And uh, if you didn't jump in this time, I hope at some point in your life you will consider the practice. I've had several people tell me that it's been fruitful in their lives as well. Um, And if you have no clue what I'm talking about, just go back four weeks and catch up on the podcast. Uh, Today... We're going to sit with the traditional text uh, before uh, Easter. It's the triumphant entry, uh, which marks the beginning of the end for Jesus uh, as he leads his disciples into Jerusalem, the last week of his ministry uh, leading up to his crucifixion. And there's a whole lot in this text, and it's going to take some time and some context um, to see what all is happening here. Um, this moment when Jesus rides on a little donkey into Jerusalem is a moment of national historical significance for the Jews, or so they thought in their context. Context. It's a moment of cosmic, eternal significance for you and I, a Christian or not. And, and and the crowds think something's happening. Jesus knows something's happening. And there's something happening for us here as well. And so we're going to be observing it from all those angles. So if you have your Bibles, it's Matthew 21. It should be on the screen. I'll read this. And we've picked out the scriptures beforehand, uh, very intentionally today, uh, that we'll be referencing throughout. So Matthew 21. Now, when they, being Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, and tie them and bring them to me. If uh, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks, and on them put their cloaks, and he sat on them, being Jesus as well. Most of the crowd, so we're walking into Jerusalem now, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road as well. And the crowds that went before him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I'm going to insert a passage from Luke we don't get in Matthew Um, as in Luke 19, 39, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. That Luke adds that in. I just love that little bit, okay? So then back to 12, okay. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to him, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Uh, Father, there is none like you. You are high in the heavens, Lord. Heaven's your throne, earth is your footstool. And yet, you are near to the brokenhearted. Uh, There's none like you, God. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come in power, I'm in this place, Lord. And would you animate our bodies, Lord, with your spirit? Would you cause us to come to life because of what you've done, Lord? Jesus, we just welcome your work in this place, in our house, in our bodies, in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit. You let me pray these things. Amen. This scene starts with an almost ironic, comical move from Jesus. He says, go to the city and you're going to find two donkeys, a colt and a foal. Um, it's gonna, and he's going to cruise into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, and when he starts riding in, right, uh, they throw their jackets on the one donkey, Jesus rides on the other. I don't know if you've ever seen a grown man ride a donkey. It is not the most inspiring vision. It actually looks kind of funny. We have, a, we have an image just we grabbed from Google. And I just want you to notice his feet are almost dragging the ground. The donkey looks tiny. And he's only one head higher than everyone else in the crowd. So if you compare that to someone riding a stallion, if you're expecting a horse and see a donkey, it's really underwhelming. That's good. Thank you for that. Despite this small fact, the crowd start gathering because this is the prophet Jesus. He's done crazy things. I mean crazy things, right? And then the crowd they start doing crazy things. They're throwing their they're throwing their jackets on the ground, okay? And then some people start cutting off palm branches. It's Palm Sunday, right? So we get the thing, you, right? And they're laying palm branches on the ground, they're waving them in the air, and they're making a path. It's kind of like they're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. And as they're doing this, they're shouting something. Uh, and all these things that they're doing, the crowd is giving Jesus a cue. The crowd is making it very clear what they're expecting Jesus to do. And some of it's a little confusing to us, but some of it just makes sense. They're treating them like royalty. Duh, they're rolling out the red carpet, right? Uh, but there's a lot more going on here, right? Right? Almost a hundred years earlier, there was a very similar scene, but a very, very different context. The people celebrated with palm branches when another religious figure rode into Jerusalem about a hundred years earlier. His name was Judah Maccabee. Now, Judah Maccabee conquered... Now, he's well-documented. You can read the book of Maccabees, find out all the stuff that he did. He, rolled, he conquered Jerusalem by force and liberated the city from a foreign oppressor, the Syrian army. Uh, Judah Maccabee was a violent, gory dude. He he conquered these dudes by guerrilla warfare in the city. Unbelievably bloody battle, right? He was a military and a spiritual leader. He was cleansing right? Jerusalem from all these heathens and and did it by blood and bloodshed, right? Defeated these guys and restored Jewish independence in Jerusalem. He was a hero. In fact, um, his actual name was Mattathias, but they called him Maccabees, which is Hebrew for sledgehammer, okay? So they called this dude sledgehammer, which tells you about his methods. Mm? They were swift they were violent, they were definitive, and they were probably a little heavy-handed. Could have done it with a hammer, did it with a sledgehammer, all right? His rule didn't last very long. He had about 80 years, and then uh, the Romans took control in around 63 B.C., and, but when he came in, they celebrated with palm branches, palm branches, Okay? So here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. You can read about it in the book of Maccabees. In fact, I'll tell you the reference. It's uh, 2 Maccabees 10:7, 7, 1 Maccabees thirteen fifty one. Both of them mention that they celebrated with palm branches as he strides into the city. Uh, not on a donkey, by the way, big white, white horse, stallion, right? So here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. Guess what? Jerusalem was under military occupation by a foreign oppressor. Hmm. And Luke 315 tells us that the Roman occupation had the Jews in eager expectation for the Messiah. Everyone was looking for the Messiah. Everyone was saying, someone has to do something. And surely, Jesus is the guy. He's the Messiah. He's the one. So grab your swords real quiet, like, because it's about to go down. Jesus, they thought, y'all, Jesus is going to kick the Romans out. And it's going to be awesome because this dude has all sorts of crazy powers. Like, you don't even know what's going to happen, right? Like, he's going to send Pilate running. And the people are saying it's starting, okay? So the palm branches give us this political context as to what the people really wanted. But there's, and we're going to, I'll tell you more, if you're like, well, this sounds weird. Okay, okay, this, it's okay. I'm going to give you plenty of things about this. But there's another more direct clue, as to what the crowds were expecting to happen by what they're shouting. And what they're shouting actually gives some political, um, some theological context. Um, they are shouting something so loud that it says it stirs up the whole city. And this seems to be the thing that sets off the religious leaders. It's what the people were shouting that prompted the leaders to say, Jesus, look, you need to tell them to shut up. This is going too far. Number one, obviously, the Roman leaders were well aware that the, the, I'm sorry, the religious leaders were well aware that the Roman leaders were watching, okay? And Rome does not handle riots super well. Don't have a great track record when people try to, you know, make their voice heard, okay? So number one, y'all are too loud, mom and dad's going to hear. But number two, do you hear what they're saying, Jesus? The crowds are actually quoting Psalm 118, and they're shouting at the top of their lungs. The word there, I love it, is "crazo." Love that word, right? It means crazy. They're crying it out. They're screaming it. There's a crazed frenzy. And what are they saying? Well, they're quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna. Hosanna means save us right now. That's what Hosanna means. Right now. Act. Do it. Do it. Do it now. One, two, three, go. Save us. That's what Hosanna means, okay? And then they're saying... Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that's Psalm 118, but they're adding something to the psalm that's not in the psalm. They're adding son of David. Son of David. Now, Jesus had an earthly dad. His name was Joseph. So what are they talking about, right? Well, they're asserting a claim about who they thought Jesus was. The son of David, y'all, is a loaded phrase in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of prophecy that the Messiah would come from the line of David. And this guy who comes who's the son of David is going to guess what? He's going to save Israel right he's going to unite the tribes and the list just goes on and on and on and on about what the son of David is going to do this this root of Jesse this you know this branch of David all these different names he's called he's going to establish justice right his kingdom's going to last forever we, we read one of those things at the beginning of the service right uh, Isaiah 11 1 says a shoot's going to come from the stump of Jesse that's David's dad Jesse's David's dad And his roots, a branch will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Jeremiah 23, 5 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness, right? In in his day... Judah will be saved, right? That's Jerusalem. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And on and on and on we can go about Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah of whom they called the Son of David. So in Matthew 12, 23, after Jesus is healing people, the question on everyone's mind is, guess what? Could this be the Son of David? What are they saying? They're not calling into question his biological lineage, right? They're saying, is this the Messiah, That's what they're saying. Is this the Christ? Is this the Lord, our righteousness, on whom the Spirit of the Lord seems to be dwelling, right? So when Matthew writes his gospel in Matthew 1-1, out of the gate, Matthew wants you to know something about Jesus, right? Uh, You know, we, we skip over the genealogies and we're like, get to the point, Matt, right? There's no wasted ink. Listen to me. There is no wasted ink in the Bible, okay? There's in there for a reason. The first thing Matthew wants you to know about Jesus, he says, this is about Jesus, the son of David. But then he says, the son of Abraham. Well, who came first? Well, Abraham came first. But what's he trying to point out to you? This is the guy. It's a, it's a claim. You call someone the son of David first century Jewish, what you're saying is this is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, who's going to rescue us, right? And so as Jesus enters the city, this is what they're screaming. The son of David is a declaration of faith. And they are saying to Jesus, guys, this is, this is profound. We're going to sit with this. They're saying to him, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're the divine one, the anointed one. Now save us from Rome. And do it now. We all think you're from God. We we affirm your divinity, okay? We're not gonna squabble. We're all in, Jesus. You're the guy. Now prove it and do the thing we expect you to do. Vanquish our enemies. Give us the land, restore our glory, kick out these pagan Roman dog Gentiles who dishonor us and you. Alright? That's interesting. They said, Jesus is the guy, for sure. Who else has the words of eternal life? Who else can heal a man born blind? Who else can raise the dead? We believe, Jesus. You're the most totally. but for what purpose? What's the Messiah supposed to do? What's, the, what's Jesus supposed to do in your life? What are the expectations that you've put on him? You may not quabble about his, the, about his divinity. You may be say, "I'm all in, but then what do you expect to get out of that exchange? Save us, yes, but from what or who? Yeah? What do you think he's supposed to do? What are your expectations, guys, for doing this whole church thing? Is it possible? Sorry, my little ear thing is just winking off the thing here. Is it possible you are praising and confessing faith in him, but doing all that for your own ends and your own purposes and your own agenda? In their case, it was a political agenda. Now, I know no one ever does that today, you know. No one ever hijacks Jesus for a political agenda. Sure, you're Jesus. Check the theological orthodox box. Now, be the kind of God and do the kind of things that I want you to do. Save me. Yeah, save me. Yeah, sure. But save me from the evils that I point out to you, God. Huh? And here we see that their expectations for Jesus were really short-sighted compared to what Jesus intended to do. And this is even further exemplified. In a week, these crowds, statistically speaking, it's almost impossible to deny that these crowds were the same crowds that were, were some of, overlapping, of the same people that were crying in a week, not, not Hosanna, not save us, but crucify him. Now, you're right, it's it's almost positive that this is some of the same people. Now, most pastors like to point out, and most people have been struck by this, you know, and and like to call that out, but they like to point out, you know, how did this group turn so quickly, and people are fickle, you know, mob mentality, and they kind of point out things like this. But it's clear to me that Jesus did not do what they were expecting him to do in their lives. It didn't go down like they thought it was going to go down. And what do you do with someone who doesn't meet your expectations? They're having way more fun than us. What do you do with someone who doesn't meet your expectations? What do you do with your wife? What do you do with your husband? What do you do with your pastor? Well, you have two You have two choices. When your job or whatever, when something doesn't meet your expectations, you either try to force them to fit into your expectations, which will effectively kill the relationship, or you lay down your agenda and begin to accept and listen to them on their own terms. Those are your two options. You either kill the relationship or you open your ears and you try to figure out what are their priorities because I have a set of priorities that they don't seem to get, you know? I just described to you, this idea of unspoken expectations is how most relationships fall apart, right? Unspoken expectations that you hold your spouse in contempt for, for not fulfilling something that you never told them you were expecting them to fulfill. That's most relationships fall apart because they're unspoken expectations and I'm angry at you because you've never done the thing that I've never told you to do, <laughs> Jesus gave them zero indication that he was going to kick the Romans out. In fact, Jesus said stuff like, hey, pay Caesars, what's Caesars? Jesus said stuff like, Peter, put your sword away. But that didn't stop the people from putting expectations on him that aligned with their personal priorities and their their felt needs, did it? See, they made the same mistake that many of us make all the time, which is they assumed that God had the same priorities that they had. They had mistaken their priorities for God's priorities. Dude, they knew the problem, like us. We know the problem, (laughs) right? They knew what needed to be addressed. They knew exactly what God needed to do, don't you? I mean, don't you think you... We all know what God needs to do. Fix the thing, right? Fix the situation. Fix the problem, right? You want to show us your love, God? Well, fix this, right? Stick it to the people that we all know deserve it being stuck to, right? (laughs) And we do the same today. We do the same today, y'all. We force fit Jesus into this expectation where we want him to save us from the evils, yes, but save us from the evils that we see as most oppressive, which oddly enough always ends up being someone else's fault, doesn't it? Can I just say to you, no one has enslaved or oppressed you to the degree of which your own sins have. No amount of external issue will ever be as oppressive and as enslaving as sin. Do you know why? Because it is a willing captivity. It's you who's given the key away. And it's a really supernaturally revealed thing when we begin to understand the most merciless and destructive forms of oppression in our life is the oppression of our own sin. Military occupation and oppression is a very destructive, especially from the Romans, a very destructive and oppressive form, isn't it? Well, what I'm telling you and what Jesus seems to think is there's something worse out there. This country could be overrun and and occupied by a, a foreign oppressor And when our hearts would say, Jesus, save us from the foreign oppressor, Jesus has a different agenda, y'all. His priority is not always our priority. And if we do not learn to listen to him on his own terms, then we will miss the redemption he has come to bring us. If you are continually pointing at external evils as the thing which Jesus has come to save you from and remedy remedy for you, right, you will miss the real work he wants to do in your heart and life. He did not come to save them from Rome. In fact, Rome burns the city to the ground some odd years later. And I'm reminded of John the Baptist. You know John the Baptist was his cousin, right? Do you remember what happens at some point? John the Baptist uh, confronts one of the political leaders about one of his sins, and the political leader puts him in, in jail, in prison. And from prison, John sends a message to Jesus, his cousin, of whom which you could assume that like, hey, he knows he's the guy. But John says, he tells his disciples, hey, ask Jesus, are you the guy or are you not the guy? Should I be looking for someone else? And Jesus' answer, in, in, some, um, in my paraphrase, right, in my kind of interpretation of his answer, is yes, John, I am the guy. I'm the guy who's going to preach to the poor and sight to the blind, all this stuff. I'm also the guy who's going to leave you in prison. I'm also the guy who's not going to act on, on this, in this particular situation, which will end in your death. But yes, I am the guy. So what we're seeing here is, is something that's repetitive in Jesus' ministry, y'all. People had expectations for him that he was continually not meeting. And you have to then wrestle with what to do with this man when he doesn't come to you on the terms that you've delineated for him to come to you on. Right? Their understanding was, yes, you're the Messiah, but save us are, from our sins? What, are you kidding? Our sins aren't the problem. That's, it's the Romans who need the sledgehammer, right? It's their sins that need to be judged, Jesus. We're the victims. <laughs> their expectations were political. They wanted a savior on their terms, to deliver them from their felt needs. They're, gonna, they're thinking this guy's going to defeat the Romans. He's going to restore our independence and our national sovereignty as, uh, as a Jewish people. Another biblical example of this, I'll tell you, just to just help with the whole thing I'm trying to express to you. In, um, at the end of one of the Gospels, I think it's Luke, on the road to Emmaus, um, you guys know the road to Emmaus? Uh, Jesus appears resurrected, right? Although they don't uh, recognize him, to two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And the disciples are walking down-faced. They're downcast and they're sad. And and Jesus, who they don't recognize, he says, hey, what are y'all talking about? And and they're like, man, are you the only guy who doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem? Man, there's this guy, Jesus, man, who's powerful, right? And man, we had hoped he was gonna be the one who redeemed Israel. And it says, Jesus calls them fools. (laughs) I just did, you know? So... It's the same. So you you understand what I'm I'm talking about? There is this expectation on Jesus to do something for them, what Jesus did not intend to do. He had, he had his sights on bigger. So in the, in the frenzy froth of this political excitement, right? He's here. He's going to, the crowds overlook this really strange thing, which is the way Jesus was presenting himself. He's riding a donkey. Like surely it struck them as not quite right, right? When you compare that to the stallion that Judah Maccabee was riding, right, who shake the ground when they run, strike fear in the eyes of the infantry, right? He's a little tiny little donkey, barely taller than you, as he saunters by, you know, his feet almost dragging the ground, right? So while the crowd is clarifying their expectations for Jesus, Jesus is also clarifying something. But as you might know, if you shout loud enough, it's really easy to ignore what other people are trying to say. So while there's multiple levels of meaning of how the crowd is acting, so there is multiple levels of meaning of how Jesus is presenting himself. He's riding a donkey. It's a beast of burden. They labor. They do the dirty work that horses are too expensive or valuable to bother with, right? When you're expecting a horse, a donkey is really underwhelming. They're smaller. They look less impressive. They look less dominating, less aggressive. Eeyore, right? <laughs> On the surface, Jesus is trying to communicate something. First of all, I'm going to do something, absolutely, but I'm going to do it in a way that you don't expect, and you're probably going to be looking up here when I'm going to be working down here. And the thing repeats over and over in our hearts and lives all the time. And we see that Jesus is teaching something about the humility of the methods of God. The humility of the methods of God. He's going to act, yes. But when he acts, it might be in a way which is easily ignored. Dude, God's moving. God is Dude, right, like, Aslan's on the move, right? God's doing stuff right now. God is doing stuff right now. And most of us are probably missing it because we're looking to the flashy, you're looking to me up here to do something for you, right? Make something happen on the stage with the lights. And God often is not gonna do it that way. He's acting, y'all, he is on the move. But the way in which he does things are humble. He is a humble king. And and most kings establish their kingdoms with oppression and force and violence. And he's saying, Not this kingdom and not this king. I am the Messiah. I am the one. Make no mistake about it. And if you don't shout it, the earth's going to cry it out. But I've got my eyes on something way more sinister than Rome. Rome's a puppet. Rome's a flicker of evil compared to what I'm taking out. And my kingdom will not be established like other kingdoms, right? Not be advanced by military force or oppression. Jesus would not then and does not now entice his followers by power or wealth or glory or possession. There is an entity that entices with those things. In fact, he, that entity, that being, tried to entice Jesus to worship him by saying he'd give him all the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth, but Jesus is gonna draw his people into his kingdom by something else, by something humble, something as simple and majestic as faithful love, something as simple and over, something that can be as overlooked as sacrifice, right? Grace, truth. So of all the figures in history, this is phenomenal. You can, oh, we got that up there. Um, of all the fi- figures in history, Napoleon Bonaparte, you know Napoleon, the great French military political leader of the 1800s, seemed to see this about Jesus. I'm going to read you a quote uh, from Napoleon about Jesus, and I, I read this almost every triumphant entry because I love it. Napoleon said this about Jesus: "I know men, and I can tell you that Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ." and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions, that resemblance does not exist. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, myself founded empires. But upon what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force, force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. It was not a day or battle which achieved the triumph of the Christian religion in the world. No, it was a long war, a contest of three centuries begun by the apostles then continued by the flood of Christian generations. In this war, all the kings and potentates of the earth were on one side and on the other I see no army but a mysterious force. His gospel, his apparition, ghost, spirit, his empire, His march across the ages and the realms, everything is for me a prodigy, a mystery insoluble, which plunges me into a reverie from which I cannot escape. We don't write like this anymore. A mystery which is before my eyes there, a mystery which I can neither deny nor explain. Okay, Napoleon. So there's one layer to the donkey. This is going to go down. It's not going to go down the way you think it's going to go down, right? But there's more here, and actually it's quoted, uh, Matthew quoted in it, which is this prophecy given 600 years earlier. It's Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, your daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation. A humble, a mountain a donkey. So in one way, Jesus is addressing their expectations. I am the guy, man. Like, right? On the, on, so the donkey is at the same time saying, I'm the guy, but I'm not the guy you think. Right? Like he's unashamedly proclaiming, I am the Messiah, endowed with salvation. I'm your king. Line of tribe of Juba, Judah, before Abraham, I am, right? But this is not going to go down the way you think it's going to go down. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And this move right now is reflective of a shift in Jesus' ministry. I don't know if you ever noticed this. The first half of Jesus' ministry, which in all the Gospels, it happens at different times. They cut it up differently. The first half of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is telling people, shh. (laughs) Luke 5.14, he heals a leper. And what does he say to him? Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Matthew 8.4, Luke 8.56, Matthew 16.20, tells his disciples strictly, don't tell anyone. right? And everyone, the whole time—if I don't know if you've—have re- you ever read the Gospels? You're reading that. You're like, Jesus, what? I mean, I thought we were like starting a religion here, man. Like these are missed opportunities. You know, we could have instead that. You know, but, but Jesus knew that his exposure in the world had one inevitable outcome, and that the more he revealed his true nature to the world, the angrier we'd get. And Jesus knew how this was going to go down. In fact, in Matthew 16, he says he gave his disciples strict orders, tell no one that he was the Christ. But from that time, Jesus began to point out to his disciples it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. In several places, he says, hey, my time's not yet come. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and he starts to say, hey, man, the Son of Man's about to be delivered in the hands of men. Matthew 17, 22 is when it happened. In Luke, it's the, the chapter 9. And the days new drew, drew near for him to be taken up, and he set his face to go to Jerusalem, right? So if Jesus' ministry wasn't already confrontational enough, at this point, he just starts cranking up the heat. He, he literally just ratchets it up, especially in the book of John. I was, reading the book of, I was reading John like eight and nine and like my blood pressure was like by the end of those chapters because it starts pretty chill and then Jesus is like, before Abraham was, I am. And then they're like, kill him, right? It just, all of a sudden, it just starts like he ratchets up the pressure and he ratchets it up around what? A claim. What's the claim of who he is? the pressure just begins to build. He begins to just come right out and say it, right? I am, I'm the guy, right? So when the religious leaders say, hey, you need to tell these guys to zip it, it's because it was heresy in their eyes, right? Your crew has taken this too far. You are not the Messiah. This is audacious and it's absurd and you need to rebuke them. And now, instead of Jesus saying, shh, what's he say? If they don't say it, the rocks will say it. (laughs) I love that. Right, if they don't declare it, creation will declare it. You know, so Jesus just turning it up. I am the guy. I am the Messiah, and he pushes it. He pushes the issue because what's the first thing he does? Well, when he goes into the site, he starts flipping over tables. Now we can't spend too much time here. Okay, we go. Okay, but let's just let's just sit there just for one second. I love this because what testosterone filled man doesn't love this Jesus? right? Rolling up in church. Wow. Flipping over tables, right? Mild, meek baby Jesus, like, you know, eh, whatever. But Jesus flipping over tables. Love that guy, right? Veins popping out, right? Bicep, you know, (laughs) sticking it to the man. It's so interesting. Um, They are saying, this is so interesting. They are saying, confront Rome. And the first thing he confronts is their religion. It's interesting. So, I I love church, okay? I mean, I work at church, right? But I've had moments in my life where I'm just like, especially when I was young, you know, and really self-righteous, the whole thing's broken, right? The whole burn it to the ground, right? Now, maybe you're not as angsty as me, okay? But like I had seasons of my life that were like that, right? A lot of us can get in a really bad way when we take authority over the church. Like, I love you, I get it, I've been there, but you ain't Jesus, Okay? like as much as I want to give full vent to my frustration of the things wrong with the place, right, which often is really kind of an adolescent frustration, it's really reflective of your lack of patience and not reflective of the righteousness of God when you, when you take an authoritative place over the church, all right? You are called to extend one thing. It's called mercy. You are called to extend mercy, not the wrath of God, and he is the only one qualified and unbiased enough to do that in righteousness, not you. I love you but you're just not qualified, and neither am I, right? You know the only place that you have the authority to flip over tables? Your own heart, right? Everyone, everything's fine there. Okay, so Jesus says, Jesus says, my house, this is very interesting, this is his language, we're really digging into the weeds today, it's, it's good stuff. He says, my house, house of prayer, and you made a dinner of thieves, right? And he's quoting Isaiah 56. All this stuff's coming from the Old Testament, man. In Isaiah 56, if you look at the heading of it, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, all, all nations. Something about all nations. mean, uh, uh, the, the, his house is going to be a called a house of prayer for all peoples. And so what Jesus is confronting, this is just a side note in all this stuff. What Jesus is confronting is, number one, you've turned God, you've turned religion into a means of profit. So in other words, you've made, it, you've made God and religion and church about your own priorities, Okay. And the second thing is you've not invited outsiders in, right? But he also, he's claiming authority over the temple, isn't he? He doesn't say the synagogue. He doesn't say my father's house, like he says in other places. He says my house. So he's condemning some stuff about God. And he's also saying, I'm in charge around here. All right, so I love that. All right, so now back to the thing. What's interesting about after he flips over tables is they confront him. We didn't read this, right? But they confront him and they're basically saying, who do you think you are? You know, can't do that kind of stuff around here, right? And Jesus tells them a parable. And it's a parable about the tenants in the vineyard who beat and kill all the people. Remember that one, the tenants in the vineyard? And, you know, the, the owner sends the people to the tenants, and they kill them, and they beat them. And finally, he sends his son, and they're like, dude, if we kill his son, we'll get the vineyard. And so they kill the son. And it says the Pharisees knew that Jesus was ta- saying this about them. And, and then Jesus quotes something. Guess what he quotes? This is like spiritual checkmate. This is so legit. He quotes, Have you never read that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. Guess what psalm that is. It's Psalm 118. It's the exact psalm to which they were pulling the Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, save us, right? It's like, spirit, it's like checkmate, you know? Fight's over, right? This is, that, that, that line that he quotes is three verses before that. We won't read it, but we're going we're gonna to keep going. He's making his claim abundantly clear. I am the Messiah, I am God come to men. You are right. I am the one riding a a donkey, endowed with salvation. I am the son of David, but not only that. I am the cornerstone that you've rejected. And if you reject me, you you've rejected God Himself. So if you have any doubts about what Jesus is doing, just go read Matthew twenty-three, where He has a really nice chipper speech to the Pharisees. Okay. All of this. After you read that, you're like, oh yeah, they're gonna kill him. Yeah, there's no doubt, right? So all of this, the donkey, the crowds, the parable, Jesus' whole ministry is coming to a head and he's confronting them and confronting us in the same way and he's making the same claim, right? And you really have kind of two options with Jesus really when it comes to this particular claim about who he is. Either you will bow before him and accept him on his own terms or you have to squash him out of your life. You have to quit listening to him. You'll have to silence your ears to his voice and blind your eyes to his presence. Either your decision right now and my decision, their decision was either you crown him or you crucify him. There is no middle ground, y'all. There's no middle ground with Jesus. Either he is who he says he is. He is the king of the universe and your life's in that or he's insane and a liar and doesn't deserve our attention in the least. So you know Lewis said it, so I'm gonna have to read it, all right? Lewis said this, But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Look, Jesus is not your life coach. He's not here to give you suggestions about your relationships, y'all, so you can win friends and influence people. And I'm honestly not sure how much he will engage you and heal you and redeem you when you treat him like garnish on the plate of an already full life. It's just not surprising to me when we feel that the Bible is dead and that prayer is useless and that worship is boring when we treat Jesus like a vitamin supplement. You don't really need him, but sure, I guess it helps. A lot of us think Jesus came to give advice. He did not. He came to offer salvation. And some of us treat him like an amenity. You know what amenity is? It's something nice, but not essential. It's pleasant, but really not necessary. We turn him into a consumer product and make him about our priorities instead of making our life about him. We invite him, many of us, y'all, we invite Jesus into our kingdom instead of submitting to his. And in doing so, you turn the lion of Judah into a domesticated house cat and say you can hang out as long as you don't make a mess. Thus, we treat him like a pair of shoes that you wear when you're in the mood, right? Instead of clinging to him, like a life raft in the midst of a hurricane, right? And when we think of Jesus in different terms than he himself has given us, not only will you be really disappointed with him, hmm, but you may end up missing the very thing he came to save you from. Jesus didn't die so you could be a part of a cool church. He did not submit to death so that you could have something to do on a Sunday morning. He, bought, he died to purchase you back from spiritual powers of darkness. He came to offer redemption from sin and death and to transfer you into his kingdom, the kingdom of the Son, whom God loves. And he is God himself. Before Abraham was, he was. He is the one who always is, the always existing one who created everything, but came into his creation to recreate it, to prove his value and love to all his little rebellious creatures, y'all. He is the rightful king, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the God over all other gods. Jesus was pushing the issue with them, and I think he's pushing it with you now. You have two options. You either crown him as king, or you crucify him. And whether or not we want to admit it, we do this every day of our lives, right, with our small actions and thoughts and behaviors. There's there's a process, yes, there's a process of this. There's a journey. But in the end, you will do one of two things with Jesus. Either you will crown him or crucify him. Will we, with the accumulation of our whole being, all its thoughts and attitudes and actions, cry out, crucify him? What does that look like? You don't listen, silence your ears, you cut off his influence over your life, or will you bow at his feet and call him Lord of all creation and Lord of me as well, right? Those are your options. Those are your options. The in-between lukewarm thing we see uh, rampant in our culture today is, in my opinion, a a, a byproduct of when Jesus has become more like a vitamin supplement in our lives and not who he claimed to be himself, right? We don't see that type of thing in Scripture. And when we do see a lukewarmness in Scripture, Jesus says, I can't do anything with that. Either you crown me king, submit to my liberating, loving rule, and enter my kingdom, or demand to maintain your own kingdom. And when you do that, the only thing you can do with Jesus is crucify him. Right? There's only one throne in your heart, right? Only room for one king. And the, the process begins even now. You understand what I'm saying? Every time the gospel is proclaimed, every time the word of God is read, you are either bending your heart in life to submit to the truth you are hearing or you are rebelling from that truth and hardening your heart to that truth. There is no in-between ground, y'all. That's why it's more dangerous to come to church than not because you are exposing yourself to the, to, to the truth of God and you will either be routine, there is no neutral hearing of the gospel. There's no neutral hearing of the gospel. You are either heart, continually hardening your heart to it so that you don't have to actually do anything about it, or you are continually submitting to it and your life will thus be you, the, begin to bear fruit is what the biblical language is. It'll start to bear fruit. What's going on? What's going on in your heart and life when we come together and read scriptures When we come and sing the praises of God? There's no neutral, there's no neutral hearing of this, guys. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, thank you that when you came to the earth, God, you had such wisdom and authority, and there's so much profoundness about what you did at every step of the way. God, we could literally just study it for the rest of our lives and never plumb to the depths of the wisdom and depth of what you did and what you said. God, I pray that our hearts would just be pricked today, to, to begin, maybe anew, listening to you on your own terms, God. God, I pray for those in this room who think they've got you figured out, but are, but are nonetheless disappointed with you. Um, God, and I pray that you would maybe begin to show them that they, ha- they might be guilty of putting expectations on you that you, that you yourself did not declare, that you, you've come for a purpose. And I, I pray, God, that our hearts would just be pricked to just open your word. And get in the Gospels and say, man, what, what was he about? What, what did he say? What were the things that he did? I, I just pray that you, we, Jesus, you'd capture our imagination. We'd just be fascinated, Lord. And we would just be drawn to push into the Gospels and the Scripture. To learn and, and absorb and hear you on your own terms, God. Lord, I just pray for um, those in this room who really have settled for hearsay when it comes to Jesus. They've settled for what the pastor talks about him and what my friends have said. And I pray that you just make them real dissatisfied with that, Lord. I I pray that today they would would go home and open uh, the scriptures in, in, in efforts to hear you on your own terms, God. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord. Give us eyes to see it, ears to hear it, Lord.